Philippians 4.1, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche, those are two women in the church, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I love it when the Bible tells me what to do. I do. I am so helped when the Bible just kind of takes all ambiguity away and it literally puts in front of my type A mind, here's some things I want you to do because it takes away all the mystery. I don't have to pray about it. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to try to get into a debate. What did God mean when he's blunt and plain and often Paul's writings of instruction just tell us what to do and what's even best about this passage, it not only tells us what to do, Paul says, and this is what will happen if you will do it. So it's ultimately a test of faith. Here's the thing. Here's how I know if I'm living in faith. Am I obeying? The currency of heaven, the currency of discipleship, let me say it that way, is obedience. If I'm not obeying, I don't believe it. If, if I believe it, I'm going to obey it. And so when I read these verses and as we go through them together, we don't need to just say amen because we think it's a good thought. We need to say, I believe that God says, if I'll do these things, this will be the result. And so he puts all of the opportunity in front of us, but he also puts all of the responsibility upon us. He's always going to do his part. And so when we're talking about peace, I'm going to give you four areas tonight that touch this issue of peace. And let's start in the first one. Go back up into verses 1 through 3. Some notes will be on the screen, but if you keep your Bible open, you can kind of walk through it with me. Let's talk, first of all, and everybody in the room needs this, working at relational peace. Working at relational peace. So this key word here is going to be together in verses 1 through 3. I'm going to talk to you about our lives together as believers. And here's the first thing, something for us to remember together. I love what Paul does here. He is a, remember, he is a powerful apostle, but he's also a tender pastor. And he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, you're my joy, you're my crown. Here's what I want you to do. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Here's the first thing we, we're going to remember together. We are not part of an organization. I know the sign says Newbridge Church. I know over in Collins Hill it says International House of Prayer Atlanta. Our corporate name is Gatekeepers. That's our legal 501c3 name. So I get it. We have organizational elements, but our relationships together have nothing to do with being part of the same organization. It's so much bigger. We are actually part of an eternal family. We don't all look alike. We have different shades of skin. We have different facial features. We speak differently. We grew up in different places and have different languages in some cases. But the one thing that we share is we all have the same father. And because we all have the same father, we are spiritual siblings right here and right now, and that will never, ever change. Jesus Christ has brought us unto the father, whereas we were once children of the enemy. We were literally enemies because we were children of the devil. Jesus actually taught that. But when we were redeemed and forgiven and saved, we were brought into God's family. 
We were translated from a kingdom of darkness, placed into a kingdom of light. We were taken away from our orphanhood and brought in as sons and daughters of God. So Paul refers to them, and it's in the masculine here, but it doesn't leave the women out. He says, my brothers, I long for you. I love you. I rejoice over you. You are my crown, and I want you to stand firm together in the Lord. And then he adds it again. He says, I want you to do this, my beloved. Now, Paul's about to address a, a problem between two believers in the Philippian church, but before we even go there, I want us to remember that. If we will rec recognize we're not just people in the same room together, singing the same songs, sitting in the same temperature, some of which y'all think it's freezing, some of y'all think it's hot, but we're not just doing uh, a Wednesday night together in a room in the same atmosphere. They were actually eternally connected. We're brothers and sisters. And the same words that Paul spoke over the Philippian church, the Lord speaks over us. We are his beloved. He actually loves us and he longs for us. That's the pulse of Jesus's heart. He doesn't tolerate us. He doesn't just nod at us, acknowledging that we're here. He longs for us as a bride that he cannot wait to consummate and marry. He's longing for that. And he says, the one instruction that Paul gives, he's saying, I want you to stand firm in the Lord. Now, this is very important because what all of this is talking about in this first couple of verses is our relational harmony, the peace that God has called us to keep with one another. And so it is working at it sometimes, the only way that that gets done. And we are not to be in relational harmony based on our politics, based on our income, based on our personalities, based on our preferences, based on any of those lesser loyalties. We're never called to anchor our unity together in those things. We are called to make sure we remember that our unity and our brotherhood, our sisterhood, is anchored in the Lord himself. And so what we do is we look at all of the things that could potentially divide us and we put them on a lesser registry than the one who unites us. In other words, I'm going to do my best to have relational peace with you because Jesus really, really loves you. You're, you're extra special to him. You're important to him, important enough that he gave his blood for, that the Father has chosen you from before the foundation of the world to be his son or his daughter, and because of that significance in the Lord, I am going to work at being at peace with you. So relational peace will, by the way, either accentuate or dilute, dilute your personal peace. There is a ramification of it. It's not just for the other person. Yes, it is unto the other person because you're esteeming others better than yourselves, as chapter number two taught us. But it is beyond that, that we literally experience either an elevation of personal peace or a diluting of our personal peace based on how we are engaging with our relationships with other believers. So what, is, what does that mean? Well, verse number two, we see by these two women that weren't getting along, there's something for us to pursue together. Look at what Paul does. I want you to think about how awkward this would have been. Because this was a public letter. It was actually the church gathered together. Paul reads the letter. And in chapter, or chapter 4, Paul says, Yodia, horrible name, Syntyche, worst name, I, I, I'm really asking you two to start getting along together. I'm paraphrasing there. Can you imagine, because like the church gathers, and you got Yodia over here on this side of the house church, and you got Syntyche kind of lingering over here, and there's a lot of people in between them. They haven't talked together in weeks. We have no idea what the problem is, but they're not speaking. Everybody in the church knows it, and it's been going on long enough for somebody to have written it in a letter in Philippi, send it all the way to Rome, where Paul reads it in jail. Then Paul writes a letter back, and it comes all the way back to Philippi, and so this wasn't that they got in an argument at lunch. This is a fracture of fellowship. And it's, it's creating a, a fissure in the church. It's a spiritual um, a problem in the church at Philippi. And so Paul doesn't get dramatic about it. He, he doesn't, you know, make a big deal. We're not even told uh, what the particulars are. It's probably something that could be easily remedied by them because he gave no instruction for who was right or who was wrong. But he says the exact same thing to both of them. He puts the onus on both of the women. And he says this, 
I want you two to agree in the Lord. There's that phrase again, in the Lord. In other words, if we can unpack it a little bit, as they're reading the letter that day, and whoever has to read it publicly sees what he's about to read, he's looking over there at the one lady and over there at the other one, they're thinking that they are not going to like this. But he's going to read it, and all of a sudden, the two women in the room become aware of what can no longer be hidden. And they're now aware that Paul's aware of it, and that brings on the added element of, oh no, the Lord's aware of it. And so what they've harbored in their hearts, and y'all know how that wor this works, please don't pretend like you've never been in a situation where you've justified yourself of why you deserve to be out of fellowship with this person or angry at this person or bitter at this person. All that. We, we know how it works. We always say, well, here's my side of the story, and when they come to my side of the story, then everything will be resolved. And Paul doesn't even get into the mix. He's a wise leader, and he says, hey, ladies, aren't you both in the Lord? Aren't you both saved? Haven't you both experienced the privilege of having all your sins washed away? Don't you both worship Jesus? When y'all were singing earlier this morning, didn't you both lift up your hands to the Lord? Now, he wasn't there, but he could, he could envision that. And so what he's saying is very simply saying, I want you to pursue this oneness together. I, I think it's important that we, we recognize that we actually can't be right with God if we're intentionally not being right with each other. I know that's a hard word, but I'm going to tell you, man, I have been, I have been in, I've, I mean, I've got to apply this myself. I know I'm, I have to do this too. But the reality is I have counseled so many people. I don't even keep track anymore, and I don't do a lot of counseling anymore. But almost every marital conflict I've ever counseled through, it's this, this bitterness that gets entrenched. And when it goes down deep and anchors deeply, it takes a mighty move of God to knock that out. And if it's outside of a marriage, it's just in relationships, brothers and sisters in the same physical family, or people that shared a portion of a ministry together, whatever it looks like, it comes to this place where somebody's got to say, for the glory of Jesus, I'm going to do this in the Lord. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to go low because I value the person more than I value my position. And so what happens in those moments is, is there is the opportunity for restoration. Now, just very carefully here, and I've got to move forward. Um, forgive, you can do forgiveness all by yourself. So if you're in a conflict with somebody, you don't need their help for you to forgive them, and you're commanded to forgive them. But it does take both parties coming into agreement for restoration to occur. And you can't do that if they're not willing, but you have to do your part. And what Paul does here is he says to both the ladies calls them out man Yodia Syntyche by the way if you're having twins next year mm -mm, no those are not the names for you he says I'm, I'm entreating you I'm not commanding he's not being forceful he's saying come on this is this is reasonable he says just just agree with each other in the Lord you know we don't have to agree on every subject together but we have to find our greater unity in the Lord. When persecution hits regions in other parts of the world, let me tell you what they don't do. Let's just say ISIS is moving into a Syrian uh, region that's full of Christians, and as ISIS moves in and threats of death and destruction are coming in, the Christians there don't say, we've got to flee the town. Hey, are, are you Presbyterian? Are you Baptist? Are, are you, are you spirit-filled? Because I, that's who I am. You don't do that. What, 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 what takes the precedent there? What becomes vitally important is that is my brother, that is my sister, we must flee. We are together in the Lord. And I don't want to wait on persecution before I start magnifying this aspect that we need to pursue this together. And so I'm not above just being very practical here. If you're sideways with somebody right now in the body of Christ, just put your name where Paul is saying Yodia and Syntyche, just put your name and that person's name in there, and he's calling you both, hey, come together in agreement in the Lord. And then I like verse number three because it's very practical. Here's something for us to guard together. Look at what Paul does. He's speaking to an unnamed person in the church who he calls true companion. It's an individual in that same church. He says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. 
Help these women, and notice what he says, they've labored side by side with me in the gospel and with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, and their names are in the book of life. I love this because sometimes you and the other person can't get it right, and, and, and listen, it requires somebody to come in and help. It, it requires mediation. Jesus would talk about this, and Matthew 18, he's talking to us, okay, here's what you do when you've got a conflict with somebody. You go to that person, and if y'all can't work it out, then you bring somebody else with you, and if it can't be worked out there, then you have to tell it to the church, but there are actually steps. But for us, let's just say we're not the people in the conflict, but we know two people that are in Jesus together and in a local assembly together, or in a family together, or wherever, a ministry or a school or whatever, and, and we know that they're going in opposite directions and nobody's dealing with the elephant in the room and that tension lies in the room. Listen, I'm gonna tell you something. When there is division among a handful of people or even a couple of people, depending on how big the church or small the church is, you get a church of 100 people and two of those 100 are at war with each other, it'll grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. You, you, and, and the Holy Spirit's like, oh, I see what y'all are doing. Y'all all know what's going on with these two beloved children of God, but y'all aren't helping them. And, and we like to keep going through the motions, but the Lord doesn't allow us to do that. And so at times, he's going to use you as a person of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. So you actually have to humbly get involved in that and say, hey, I believe that if we can just get our eyes together on Jesus, that you two who have been at odds with each other, I love you, I know you love the Lord. That's what I always like to do. I like to point people back to the fact that, hey, we actually worship at the feet of the same Savior. We actually bow before the same throne. We actually have the same Holy Spirit. How in the world can we be at odds with each other without trying to come to a reasonable place where we say, okay, for the glory of Jesus, we're going to do whatever it takes so we can walk in harmony again. And there have been times in my life where I've had to have a, a third party come in and help me reconnect to somebody that I got divided from. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't be ashamed. If you're going to be ashamed about anything, be ashamed that you're content to go another day without working on it. And I wouldn't even suggest being ashamed of that. I'm just saying, be motivated that that won't be on your resume. Now, let's go a little bit further because you think these verses are tough. Get down into verses four through seven with me because moving from relational peace, let's talk about prioritizing emotional peace. I'm going to start out by saying this. Nobody here is a prisoner nor a slave to their emotions if you're saved. We're not. Now, there are times where we can't get out from under it and we just don't know what we're going to do, but I'm going to tell you, the feelings are never given the last word. The Holy Spirit in you always has the, the word of authority. And so what do we do when maybe relational disharmony has now gotten in us and we, we're losing our emotional peace? We don't feel God. We don't feel rest. We don't feel the quietude that is supposed to be consistent with our abiding in Jesus, but we feel the chaos, we feel the fear, we, we fear the paranoia, we feel the, in, we feel the insecurity, we, we, we feel that everybody's against us and nobody's for us. What do we do with that? Well, we need to do something, and Paul's going to help us a little bit here. First of all, and this may feel unfair, especially if you're in the season like I just described, we've got to come to that place where we actually treasure joy in your soul i need to treasure joy i'm talking about the sense of joy and the activity of joy look at what paul does tell me if this has this ever hit you as come on man rejoice in the lord when everything's going your way rejoice in the lord when there's hundreds that have got your back rejoice in the lord where everybody gets you understands you and loves you it's not what he says. Rejoice in the Lord, you say it. Always. And as if we didn't get it, he says, again, I will say, rejoice. It is a command. We think, if we're, if we're not biblically enlightened on the issue, and sometimes it's convenient to want to think this, we think, well, joy is the expression I get when I feel it and I say well what do we do with the command if we don't feel it because the command is like if it can it can feel like a little box that we're getting stuffed in 
Rejoice in the Lord. Oh, there you go. See, that's the difference maker. It's not rejoice in your circumstances always. Your joy is actually objective. It's not a subjective emotion. It's not, it's not a feeling that is attached to whatever might be happening. Paul is very specific. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And because the source of our joy is the Lord, he can add the word always. Why? Because the Lord is always worthy of our joy. Life isn't. I mean, he's not being unfair. He didn't say rejoice in your relationships always because sometimes your relationships don't have anything joyful in it. He definitely doesn't say it about work or pain or suffering. I understand that rejoicing in the Lord is the context. Why? Because your whole life is a Christian. That's the context for your whole life, in the Lord. And so he's not being unfair when he tells us to rejoice in the Lord. But I'm going to be honest with you. I forget that all the time. I forget it. And I know none of you do, so this is my moment of confession. I forget it. Why? It's not that I forget to rejoice. I forget the Lord. I, I forget something becomes bigger than the Lord in those moments. Something gets in the way and obscures my vision of God, and instead of pushing it aside and staying focused on the Lord, what I do is I start looking at the Goliath whose shadow I'm standing under. And my and listen, if we're all wired differently, but when something's in the way and something's eclipsing, what I want to do is I want to say, I want to peek around and say, Lord, let me take care of this thing. When I get done with this thing, I'll be back rejoicing you, but time out for a minute. And I put all of my energy and all my focus on the thing that is in between me and God. And guess what happens? I don't have any joy when that thing has my focus. And so when I, I and forgive me for confessing slash testifying, I'm, I'm hoping it's instructional because I, I think that experience is common to a lot of people. But, but we're literally told, no, you actually may not be able to move that thing. And even if you can move it in an hour, it's still an hour that we forfeit joy because something else has our fixated attention. You say, well, Jeff, this just doesn't sound easy. You're right. It's not easy. Crucifying yourself is not easy. Dying to self, dying to circumstances, dying to your flesh, that is not easy, but it is required. And so let's go on because there's actually one that's harder than this that's coming up in two verses. So aren't you glad you're here tonight? Amen, amen. So verse number five. The, and again, remember, he's giving us instructions, and then he's going to tell us what the result is. Verse number five is the second instruction here, and I call it weaning yourself from agitation. Uh, I don't love the ESV translation here. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And I actually think the Lord is at hand is better affixed in verse number six rather than verse number five. But I'll just roll with that. Let your reasonableness. It's a, it's a Greek word that means your mildness, your gentleness, your your yieldedness, your easiness, your gentleness, your mildness. He says, allow that to be known to everybody. Listen, something's coming off of you all the time. We all give off something. Call it a spirit, call it a vibe, call it a uh, an aura, I don't care what you call it, but you know that there, when people walk in the room and you're there for a minute and you know, sometimes you get what comes off of them immediately. And it can be positive or it can be negative. There are people that walk in the room and you're like, I don't know who that is, but I got to know that guy. I, whatever's coming off of him, I like that. There's something on that guy. And it can be the opposite. It could be, ooh, that dude got in the room 10 minutes before his body walked in here. There is something coming off of him pride, arrogance, whatever it might be. So we're all giving off something. Well, what Paul's saying here is you need to give off gentleness and yieldedness so that everybody knows it's on you. That's what he says. Look, let your reasonableness, your gentleness, your yieldedness be known to everyone. Why is that important? Because we're talking about peace. Remember, it's, these aren't standalone verses. He's got two women in the church that are fighting and he's got the rest of the church not doing anything to help them. And so what Paul is saying here, he's saying, hey, y'all are in the Lord. Y'all are in the Lord together. Y'all are saved. Y'all's names are written in the book of life together. Y'all are soldiers of the gospel. 
I didn't take time to break that down, but these women, Yodia and Syntyche, are described as fighting side by side with Paul and Clement and the rest of the workers in the gospel. It's actually a military picture. They're not in the fellowship hall baking casseroles. These women are warriors that have fought with Paul when he established that church, and now they're divided from each other. And Paul's saying, hey, listen, y'all need to be yielded. Y'all need to be gentle. Y'all need to be easy. And by the way, we can't cop out on that if, if that's not our personality. He's not appealing to their personality. He's appealing to their position with each other in the Lord. And so it's the, the kindness that Jesus gave off. Would we say Jesus is powerful or not powerful? It's a question. He's powerful. He's omnipotent. Um, but he was also gentle. He was also yielded. He was also, as King James said it, meek and lowly. And yet nobody would look at Jesus and say he's got no power. Jesus totally owned his power. And so he wasn't going to worry about how he might be misunderstood if he was gentle and meek and mild. It wasn't going to take away a thing from his strength. And so when it comes to relationships, when we offer peace, we can receive peace. And then when we are offering and receiving peace, gentleness, yieldedness, there are some people who won't respond like in turn to you. When you give gentleness, there's some jokers out there that will respond with aggression. There's some people out there that will try to take advantage of that. But typically speaking, when your moderation, your gentleness is known to everybody, the kind of people that you want to do life with are going to be attracted to that, and it's actually going to bring glory to God. So the question for, for me because this is not who I am. This is not who I am in my natural. I'm, I'm, I'm born for war. I, conflict does not scare me. I, I often feel like I'm at my best in times of conflict, but what do you do when there's not a conflict? You have to cultivate a testimony that says it's a gentle, peaceful, yielded Christian. And that's not going to happen by accident. It's literally commanded. You need to let it be known to everybody. Notice this. I'm going to put the end of verse number five, and I'm going to attach it to verse number six, just in case you were wondering. There were no chapter or verse numbers in Scripture until about 1550. So the first, you know, 1500 years of church history, there were no chapter breaks or verse numbers. So just so you don't think I'm fooling with the word of God, I'm just saying I disagree with the way they broke up this verse because the Lord is at hand means the Lord is near. It, it's, not, it's not necessarily referring to the Lord is coming back soon. He says the Lord is at hand. The next words are don't be anxious about anything. So let's talk about refusing to nurture our anxiety. Don't, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Okay, all right, Who help me, Jesus. Because I actually just read to you the most frequently ignored and disobeyed command in all the New Testament. Seriously, if, if we go after all of the big moral things. You know, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about biblical morality we absolutely should but it's funny I, I've heard a thousand messages it seems like on all the moral standards and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this but I've only heard a handful of of, of this command a handful of sermons on this command it, you know what it says let me paraphrase it the Lord is near don't worry about anything we're, we're commanded listen keep it up on the screen put it back up on the screen I want you to see do not be anxious about anything. Leave it up there. But in everything, pray. Bring your supplications. Give your thanks and make all your requests, specifically what he's talking about, everything you're tempted to worry over, Pray about it, pray about it, pray about it. Put your request before the Lord and then thank him, but don't worry about it anymore. Man, I love the word of God, but I am not, that's not my favorite verse. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, 
at least three times, said, don't worry, why are you worried? Stop worrying. We are an anxious generation. It is epidemic. It may be a plague at this point. The level of anxiety. And here's the thing. We're actually trained by all these outside influences to nurture our anxieties. Do you, how many of you are, are kind of marked sometimes when you meet somebody that is constantly laid back? They are chill. Nothing bothers them. Now, everybody can have a good day, maybe even a good couple of days like that, but I have people in my life that they're, I've never seen them anxious. I've never seen them worried. Then I, there's also other people in your life that are always worried about everything, that they're, they're absolutely, they don't know what to do if they don't have something to obsess over. And, and, and so when, when I come to this place in the Bible, and, and this whole context is about peace and joy, Paul says, you're going to have to learn to stop worrying about anything. Now, let me tell you, because that feels really irresponsible to some of us, right? Well, what about the big stuff in life? Listen, if somebody tells me I've got a sickness, if a doctor says you've got a sickness and you've got three months to live, how do I do that? Now, I know there'll be grace in that moment, but based on this verse, there is the, the expectation of God for me to run immediately to him with that, to let my request be, be known, to bring supplication. And by the way, all of those words, prayer, supplication, um, thanksgiving, and petition, they are all verbalized words. In other words, he doesn't say just think about it and call it prayer. He's saying, talk to me, talk to me. I want you in my presence. I want you to pour out everything in you. He, he didn't say don't be afraid. What, what worry is, is when we feel fear and we nurse, and we nurse it. We just let it nurse on us a little bit. And, and, and it just it grows and it grows and it grows. Why? Because we're nurturing the worry. And what the Lord says is, no, actually, I want you to process this with me. All three of the words are verbal. You can study them out in the Greek if you have any Greek lexicons. You look at them. They all include you talking to God. Because what happens is if you're not talking to God, two things happens. One, you're talking to you, and that's not going to be a healthy conversation. And two, if you're not talking to him, that also means you're not hearing him. Because it's a conversation. Prayer is a conversation. And so what the Lord says, what Paul says, is that when we come to these places of anxiety, and you're going to face some intimidating stuff in life, some heartbreaking stuff in life, but I do believe that there is a place that we can grow into to where it's not only our knee-jerk reaction to start being paralyzed with anxiety and a fear, but that we can actually recognize the situation we can see that it could cause us to be anxious, but we, our new instinct is that we go to the Lord with it, and as we continue to go to the Lord with it, we're releasing all of that to him, and then he's speaking back to us over time, and the end result is this. We come away and we're thanking him. I don't know if that sounds unrealistic to you, but I will tell you, in the natural, in the flesh, it's wholly unrealistic. You cannot do this in the flesh, but you are not of the flesh. If you are in Christ, you are a person of the Spirit. So it's, an, it's a totally reasonable command. Now, I'm not picking on people at all tonight that struggle with anxiety, but I'm, I'm going I'm to be bold with you here. You can't be okay with designating yourself a fearful and anxious person as a Christian. If, if, if that is your lot in life, if, that, if, if that's the way you're living, the Lord is inviting you to obey Philippians 4, 6. And he catches your attention with this hardcore command. Don't worry over anything. But instead of worrying about things, come into my presence and say everything that you've got to say and take as long as you need to take and come back as often as it was, is required. I will be here. And what's going to happen is in your processing to me, you're going to be able to hear me talking as if the Lord was speaking to us. He's, he's saying, you're going to not only get to unload all of that stuff, but as you unload it and process it, and you're trusting me, 
I'm going to be instructing you. And the Lord always points us to himself. Because our tendency is, Jesus, I've got all my, I've got an MDiv, I have been to seminary, I, I've, I've got a Master's of Divinity, I've been pastoring, I, I know all of the theology. Um, none of that's helping me. It's like, yeah, I'm not asking you to trust in your theology. I'm asking you to come to me. And there's a big difference. We can run in all of our deepening theological circles in our mind, but if we're not opening our mouth and pouring out our complaint to the Lord, then it's not relational. And the more you keep it in your mind, I have, the worst conversations I ever have in life are with me. I mean, I'm surprised y'all come to hear me preach. I'm always confessing how jacked up I am. Uh, it's not like this all the time, but I'm going to tell you, you get in a pinch sometimes, and if you're counseling yourself, it doesn't always end well. Sometimes you've just got to be quiet, and, and I'm talking about like self-talk, and you just, you've just got to speak to the Lord. I love, I didn't even mean to, mean to linger here this long, but I love the fact that the Lord's never in a hurry. And I don't have to word it in a way. He's not an English teacher saying, you didn't say that right. You, that was not the right way to say that. Sometimes, the Bible says, sometimes you've got groanings that can't even be articulated. And the Holy Spirit says, I know exactly what she's saying. And so we get to get in his presence and everything that if we hold it, and we get in that self-suffocation of holding on to the problem, holding on to the fear, holding on to the threat, and, and we're just there with it, man. It, it just, it's physical, it's mental, it's emotional, it's spiritual, and none of it's good. But when we just get before him, and some, listen, you can, you can holler at the Lord. I, I know that that offends the, the, the religious spirit in us. But are, are you kidding me? Have you read the Psalms? We read the Psalms as if they're all sweet, like little choir boys singing under the Lord. Some of those are, are, are like, when will you rouse yourself? When are you going to move? I like the imprecatory Psalms. Lord, kill him. Kill him. We would never pray that. Maybe that's why we stay victimized as long as we do. Because we, we don't feel like we, well, I can't, I don't, don't want to say that. Listen, the Lord can handle it. And if it's not his will to kill that person, he will bring you into alignment with his will. But he's not going to kick you out of the room because you said something that maybe he didn't give the thumbs up to. And the problem is we're always trying to get it right. We're always trying to, you know, make sure we say it right because if we say it right, he's obligated to do what we want. Come on now. I got somebody back there helping me. I just think that he's a father who never runs out of patience with his kids, doesn't grade us on how we pray, and he already knows we're worried or afraid or threatened. Why should we pretend like we're not? And there's something in processing that before the Lord, and the Lord says, just keep talking. Come on. A little bit further. Keep, come on. That's right. You're getting it out. Come on. Come on. And you've, you've cast your, your cares upon the Lord. And when you've said all that you can say, there is a clarity that begins to come over the mind. And sometimes all he has to do is speak one word. And once you've gotten all the junk out of you, and sometimes it just takes an instant. I've experienced that. I've experienced where I'm just pouring out a big, nasty, old, stinky, hairy mess and just, and I put it before the Lord and I get done and my eyes are swollen because I've cried and my throat is raw because I've, I've yelled. And, and the Lord just kind of whispers one thing in the spirit and I'm like, and I can go in the strength of that for days or weeks, but not if I keep my mouth shut and not if I nurture my anxiety. So verse number seven tells you the effect of verses four, five, and six. Remember, rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Be mild and gentle, yielded. Let that be your spirit that everybody knows. The Lord is at hand. He's near you. Therefore, don't be anxious about anything, but pray and thank him and let all of your requests be made known to him. And then verse 7, you'll receive a calmed heart. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in 
Christ Jesus. Cause and effect. This is where we find out if we really believe God. Because if we truly believe God, we will expect verse 7 to become a quality of our lives. What is it? That when we are in a situation that is threatening or frightening or overwhelming and we do all these things and when we're walking in a yieldedness and we're aware that the Lord is at hand, he's near, he's with, he's in, then what will happen as we continually live out this kind of life, God's peace will guard. It's a, it's a military term. It's a garrison. Picture 50 soldiers around your heart saying, ain't nothing going to get in here to knock this person down. Ain't nothing going to get in here to destroy. Except it's not a 50-person, a 50-soldier garrison. It's the Lord, and it's his peace. So because he's at hand, because you are communicating with him and receiving from him and refusing to nurture your anxiety, and when you start living in a pattern of this, God's peace keeps you. So when the same situation that threatened you a year ago finds you next year, guess what's happened? You're like, I've been here before. I got the peace of God on this thing. Why? Because you've matured. You've walked. You've grown. I, I, I don't think we need to undervalue the peace of God. Um, it, it is Jesus, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not like the world gives, but my peace I give to you. So it's part of your inheritance, and we can't be cool with living without that piece of inheritance being a reality. So now we're going to get down into verse 8 and 9, last two verses. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after us here. And I, I, if I preach this right, it, 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 if I preach it right tonight, it will at least make some of you mad. And if it goes, and it will, it'll go on our media streams on TV. It's got to make a lot of people mad if I preach this right. And so if, if nobody gets offended at this, I've not done my job. What am I talking about? You and I taking ownership of our mental peace, our peace of mind. And Paul is going to say, if you want peace, I'm going to tell you what to give your mind to. Because your mind is the gate. Your mind is the gate. Whatever comes through that gate starts moving throughout the rest of your life. And your mind, my mind, I'm the only one who can open and shut that gate. And so here we go. I'm going to give you the, the command first. It's actually found at the end of verse 8, but let me give you the command. Think about these things. So I'm going to give you the command first, and then he's going to tell us what these things are. But very quickly, this denotes a constant thought process. This means Jeff Lyle. You must intentionally give your mind to the things I'm about to say. And the context of it is don't give your mind to things that don't fit in these categories. You with me? You're like, I don't want to amen yet. I don't know where you're going with this thing. First of all, this is easy. Focus on that which is biblical. Where do I get that? Whatever is true. Think about whatever is true. The reason why I make this framed up in a biblical context is because the Word of God is true. The written Word of God is true. It is God's self-revelation. If you want to know God, He says, here, start reading my book. It's all about me. And so the Bible is filled with truth. There are true promises, true prophecies, true principles. There are true, did I say promises? There are true prohibitions. So when the Bible is teaching us and instructing us and bringing revelation to us, the context of it is truth. And if we know this book, we not only recognize what is true in the book, but we are by the book, we recognize what is true and not true all around us. It becomes the lens on the front of our minds by which we discern everything. So everybody in here tonight is living according to their version of the truth. Everybody is. There is something that drives our thoughts, that puts up our boundaries, 
that defines to us moral right and wrong, relational right and wrong, doctrinal right and wrong. And the Bible says, Paul says here, think about the things that are true. Now, very practically speaking, one of the reasons why Newbridge Church is a church who has two primary pillars, the authority of the Word of God and the necessity of the Holy Spirit. And they're not in, in competition with one another. They're actually sourced in the same throne room. And so the Word of God is to define what is true. Let me, let me, just, let me just go here. Now nah, I'm going to save that one. I'm going to go there in a moment. Hold on. Th there is absolute truth. Millennials, Generation Y, hear me on this. There is absolute truth. There are eternal moral standards, eternal theological truths. There are some things that are wrong everywhere in the universe. Wherever you take this idea and put it, it's wrong because God says it's wrong. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. It doesn't matter who likes me because I stand in that truth or who dislikes me because I, I resist that truth. The reality is the Bible, the Word of God, is the self-revelation of the nature and the will and the ways of God, and it's true. So, Jeff, who are you yelling at? Anybody that doesn't believe this. And I'm not doing it in anger. This is passion. You know, one of the, one of the signs of the end of the age is they will not endure sound doctrine. We are there. Yeah. Man, don't give me all that Bible. I know what's right for me. I'm like, man, I love you too much to let you walk in that level of stupidity. It, 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 you may feel it's right for you, but that's not new. There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so it's our job, part of it, is to say, actually, this is true. Actually, that is not true. And then I, I, I'm seeing here that it's on me to know what is true. Th there'll be nobody that'll be able to stand before the Lord and say, yeah, I didn't know that's what you, what you said. And at least not for Westerners that have a Bible in their own language. God said, oh, you actually could have. You didn't want to. Because when you know what's true, you also know that you're accountable to it. So what do people do? They're just like, yeah, I don't, don't want to deal with the, the Bible. I'm, you're a Bible thumper and all that. Um, why would we not want to know what is true? I think the reason is that people love their darkness more than the light. And, and that's not original with me. The Son of God said that. People love their darkness more than the light. Paul would write to the church at Galatia, whatever makes manifest or makes visible, he says, it's light. Anything that shines truth is the light of God. We'll go a little bit further. Don't only focus on that which is biblical, what is true, but focus on that. Give your mind, think about those things that are superior. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable. See, this is where we start getting into, oh man, I really need to think through some things. The, the word honorable, I mean, literally the Greek word means think on those things that are reverent. Think on those things that are, are, are dignified. Think on those things that are noble. The Lord actually calls us to live as noble citizens of his kingdom. And this, is, this has some subjectivity to it. But I'm going to tell you, my guess is that there's a lot of things that we embrace as just kind of part of our culture. We say, well, we can't live with our heads in the sand. And, you know, we, we just kind of make excuses. But he's talking about what you give your mind to, your mind. I can't help but to read these verses and I automatically my default is to go to the world of entertainment. And I'm thinking, there ain't a lot in the world of entertainment that is A, true, and B, honorable. And, and so because we are, maybe not in this room, but this generation in this nation, we assume that entertainment 
is a primary part of our lives that we have a right to be entertained and we want more entertainment and so the tendency for a lot of people is to just kind of lower the threshold it's just like well you know i don't want to be a prude i'm not a i'm not a puritanical kind of old fogey or whatever and hey look it's everywhere i'm not doing it so what if i'm watching it or listening to it well this is what paul says that you're actually giving your mind to it and it touches you it's not just outside of you the gate is open and when it walks through the gate it goes somewhere into your life and paul's saying you're gonna keep your mind open to things think on those things that are honorable and so I just leave that kind of with, with, with you to kind of work through. So whatever is true, which means conversely, don't give your mind to what is false. Don't give your mind to what is fallible or untrustworthy or imagined or made up. Whatever is honor, honorable, don't give your mind to that which is shameful or twisted or foolish. He says, don't give your mind to that. Remember why he's saying this. He's saying, you want peace, right? You, you, you want the peace of Jesus in your life. Okay, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to help you here. Think about those things all the time. Put your mind on what's true, and then put your mind on what is honorable. And then he goes even further. Focus on that which is holy. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. So again... There are some things that may not be moral or immoral, but is it helping your level of consecration to the Lord? Is it drawing you nearer into his presence, deeper into his presence, where you can hear the whisper of his secrets? Or, or is it kind of throwing up barriers? Is, is it just stuff that's, maybe you don't have a thou shalt or a thou shalt not on it, but is it, is it just? Is it right or righteous with God? Is it morally pure? I'm not going to avoid this. I'm not going to be so vague here that everybody says, well, he didn't really say. Let me, let me be, and I'm going to give you the context. Does anybody know where I'm about to go? So I, I'm going to give you the context of this. I don't, know, I don't know what you watch and what you don't watch. But the Game of Thrones thing, I've never seen it, but I know all about it. And so a friend of mine had posted something online because she didn't know what it was about. And I'm her friend, and so I'm just saying, hey, no, 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 no. You, you don't want to go there. And I had no idea that her Facebook post was going to get hijacked. And it became this 50-comment section. And if you're not familiar with, with the, 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 the show, it's just gratuitous violence sex nudity and for the sake of younger ears i'm not going to say much more than that it is pornography and christians call it entertainment now i'm going to be very bold here i don't even have to wonder there is no way in heaven that god says yeah that's that's morally neutral it is defiling. It is, it is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, inappropriate. And if you think you can watch that and it not affect your spirit, you've been deceived. So I, I'm not trying to, because I don't know who does or who doesn't in here. I'm just going to go ahead and be one guy that's not ashamed to say, don't come in on Sunday and lift holy hands to the Lord when Saturday night you were watching orgy and rape scenes. Repent and then come in. Now, and again, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but listen, when there has, where we've now reached a place in the church where we're saying, eh, it's a big deal little entertainment it's got a great storyline the devil doesn't mind weaving in an interesting storyline as long as he can get through the gates of your mind with all the other stuff and i'm gonna tell you you can't come out immune 
There's no immunity. You cannot have that. I'm, I, oh, man, thank you, Lord, that there's only six minutes left. Listen, I'm going to strengthen it. There is demonic activity attached to those images. There's demons all over that stuff. And when it comes in, it's coming in to your mind in the chariots of the demonic realm. And they don't mind just kind of sitting quiet for a little bit. And then they ambush your mind the next time you go in to pray and you can't quit thinking about what you saw. You, do you think that's just your mind? It is Your mind is the, the vehicle through which you are sensing those things, but it is the activity of the demonic realm. So I'm going to leave that with you. Paul just said this, give your mind to things that are pure and lovely. And there's nothing pure or lovely with that kind of entertainment. It shouldn't be entertaining at all it ought to absolutely cause us to catch our breath. Last thing, focus on that which is worthy. He says, whatever's commendable, whatever's praiseworthy, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, go ahead and give your mind to that. And again, the Greek verb tense is, Keep your mind. It's a continual thing. It's a present tense verb. Always think about these things. Always think about these things. Your mind is never in neutral. Even when we're asleep, isn't that crazy? When we're not actively thinking, our brain is, is having, you know, 4K ultra projection into our, our being. Our, our brains never stop while we're living. And so our mind is always going, and our, our minds rehearse in our sleep what we've lit in the gate while we're awake and so if we will think on those things that are commendable even our dreams and our mind and our thoughts while we're asleep even our dreams can glorify God they can be vehicles through which God speaks to us and Paul says if there's any excellence and if it can be commended that to me that that helps let me just shut my thing I, verse number nine I'll have to be for a different day Verse number nine at the end of it, he just says this. He says, the God of peace will be with you. Earlier he said the peace of God. But when he, he moves from the peace of God, something from God, to God himself being with you. It speaks of fellowship. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of nearness. It speaks of proximity. R.T. Kendall's book, I've recommended it, I'm going to recommend it again, The Sensitivity of the Spirit. Read that book, it'll change the way you think about your interaction with the Holy Spirit. It has very little to do with gifts of the Spirit. It has everything to do with the presence of the Holy Spirit and what grieves Him, what quenches Him. R.T. Kendall pictures the Holy Spirit as a dove, and he tells us about doves in the natural, how the slightest thing can send them a flight. And he says, Christians underestimate what sends the spirit away, what causes the dove to lift off in flight. He says, we underestimate it. But if we will give our hearts and our minds to those things that are good, the Holy Spirit says, this is a place I can call home. This is a place that's aligned with the master. This is a place that is the atmosphere of heaven. This temple that I'm indwelling, this is a place built for me and the front gate of that temple the mind only opens to those things that are worthy of the glory of Jesus and my look at how she has learned to close those gates when something dangerous is headed that way look at how he stands there and says no to things that want to enter that he's now learned are not consistent so as I close it out tonight I love you but man, I hope I made somebody mad tonight. I do. I'm dead serious. Not because I like that kind of conflict, but because if, if you came in thinking other than what I just very clearly stated here, then I, I hope one of two things. Either it broke your heart and you repented right there where you sit, which you can do, or that if you refuse to repent, I hope you're mad as fire at me. 
not because I want to wrestle with you, but because I've touched something, that the Lord put his finger on something. Guys, I got 60 seconds. (laughs) Holiness wasn't for grandma and grandpa. Holiness is for every single born-again believer who calls herself or himself a follower of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will affirm what is holy and he will expose what is unholy. And he does it not to rob you of entertainment, but to develop you to have an appetite for those things that please the Lord. Amen? All right, God bless. We're dismissed.